Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. that these lessons have been uh, informational and educational, but mostly I hope they've been encouraging. And I hope that they have um, even been a little challenging, pushing you to re-examine how you approach scripture, how you study scripture, how you read scripture, and uh, honestly, how you obey scripture and how you share scripture with other people. So I hope that this is doing that for you. For those of you who may be watching this that are unfamiliar with scripture or um, or maybe just new to scripture. I hope that this is something that is um, showing you the reality of, of what's inside this thing that we call the Bible. And um, look, I, I, I'll admit there's many Christians who have grossly um, employed the teachings and the stories of the Bible in ways that are um, difficult for unbelievers to understand. Um. And um, so I hope that this reflection of scripture is helping you to truly understand what is in the Bible. Now, the Bible will challenge us. The Bible will give us things that are difficult. The Bible will give us things that are hard to accept, difficult teachings. And, um, you know, we can't shy away from those. But if we have a Christian person that just um, out of ignorance or bad theology or selfishness or whatever is just using scripture incorrectly or teaching scripture incorrectly, or maybe doesn't understand the fullness of it, then we can defeat that with good teaching, right? So uh, if you are a longtime believer, welcome. If you are a skeptic, welcome. I love that you're here to learn about scripture. Um, I do have one friend that's been watching these that sent me a message, uh, and I didn't even realize that that uh, she was really watching them. She had mentioned earlier that that she had seen one of them. But apparently she's been uh, watching them all and they've really been helping her on a personal journey that she's on right now. And as she gave details of that to me, I don't want to share them uh, to kind of keep that confidential for her. But um, I was just amazed at what God is doing uh, through his stories and through this, you know, that I wasn't even sure if anybody was watching or was going to watch or not. We're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 20 tonight. Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to do something we really haven't done in this series. It was something that I would do quite often in the Genesis series, but 
haven't really done in this series. And that is a review. I'm not going to review every single thing that we've talked about because that would take a long time. But what I am going to do is start to give you chunks because here's the thing. You, unless you're just like super Christian, you're not going to memorize the whole Bible. I don't know. I have a friend that has memorized a ton of scripture. He hasn't memorized the whole Bible. He's memorized way more than probably I, I ever will. Uh, and it's really remarkable and fascinating. And I, and I love that he's done it. But um, most people are not going to memorize the whole Bible. So how do you find things? Well, Google is great or whatever. You know, get in your search engine and you can find things that way if you remember a little piece of it, that sort of thing. But I, I think it's good to at least kind of have a general sense of the continuing story of God and kind of know um, you know, how things how things progress as they uh, as they go, you know, as you as you go throughout the books. So I'm gonna go back and sort of review things by chunks. Uh, just a little bit. So switch over to my keynote here. So the series is called Wandering. It's about this period of time that we're reading about right now, the the wandering period as they wander in the wilderness as a, as a discipline, as a punishment. And But it's also this time where God is visibly with them, very close to them. And um, the book of Numbers in the Hebrew, it's not called Numbers. It's called the first word of the book, which in this case is in the wilderness. That's the name of this book in the Hebrew is in the wilderness. I think that's a much better title for the book. And I like to call it that. We've looked at this map several times, and this is uh, what we call the Sinai Peninsula. And um, I have um, actually been able to figure out how to kind of draw some things on here since I'm not able to, to point at it live for you. So hopefully you can see that. So this is... Um, the red line there is what I say is probably the correct Exodus route. Uh, the yellow stars there, the yellow star at the bottom, at the tip of the peninsula, that's where classically people say Sinai is, Mount Sinai. There's a tall mountain down there, and there's some churches and um, some little shrines and things that have been built down there. The yellow star towards the top of the screen, you'll see it's just southwest of the Israeli border. And this is where a lot of people think uh, Kadesh Barnea is. We'll look at that when we get into uh, the scripture here, because it, it takes place in uh, Kadesh. And that's where the Israelites spent about 38 years out of the 40 wandering years, sort of around the area of Kadesh Barnea. And so classically, people think it is where that top yellow star is. Um I think just from my study that more likely locations for these events are the red stars. So the red star at the bottom right is Mount Laws. Um, I think the, the 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 Arabic name for it is Jabal El Laws, and um, I think that's probably where Sinai was. It's a tall mountain uh, there, and the, you can see there's a little green patch inside that star, so it's a tall mountain there. And then uh, Kadesh Barnea is probably closer to the modern day city of Petra or the ancient Petra, in, which is in Jordan, which is where uh, near where I've got the, the red star sort of at the top there. That to me makes more sense for Kadesh. You see the red line uh, going up from Sinai towards Kadesh and you see all the wilderness that's there. Um, I mean, I don't know how you get from the from the yellow star that's supposed to be Sinai up to the yellow star that's supposed to be Kadesh. Um without basically going back towards Egypt. I don't know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but if you go the red route, then 
when you end up at Kadesh near Petra and Jordan, you, you would basically be in Moab or close to Moab, which uh, they cross from Moab across the Jordan River, just, just north of um, where this photograph is, this satellite photograph. So hopefully those markings maybe will give you a little clearer view of sort of what I am saying is probably the Exodus route just from clues in scripture. Um, again, the yellow is the classic ideas that you'll find in your Bible atlases and in your commentaries and here in Sunday school and that sort of thing. Um, I could be wrong. Okay, so let's go through scripture just real quick in sort of chunks. Exodus verses uh, chapters one through six. This is the history of the Hebrews. Moses and God calling Moses and telling him, you know, here's here's what's going to happen. Chapters 7 through 11, that's the 10 plagues. Chapters 12 through 15, this is the Passover and the Exodus. Uh, chapters 16 through 18, this is the Lord providing. The Lord does a lot of providing, but this is specifically after the Exodus, but before he appears at Sinai. So Exodus 19, the Lord appears on Mount Sinai. And from there, all the way through chapter 40, we have the Israelites there at the foot of Sinai and the Lord's glory uh, on top of the mountain. That's where he gives uh, Moses in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. He gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. Chapter 32 is the golden calf. Chapter 34 is uh, God defining himself, abounding in steadfast love, uh, forgiving iniquity, that sort of thing. And then you have the building of the tabernacle. So then we get into Leviticus, and we have chapters 1 through 7 are the offerings. Chapters 8 through 10 are the ordination of Aaron and his sons and the story of Nadab and Abihu. And that seems to spark sort of the rest of the book, which is chapters 11 through 27, which is the very specifics of the law enumerated by God in quite, quite a bit of detail, particularly as they relate to cleanliness versus uncleanliness, holiness versus uh, impurity. Now we're into Numbers, Numbers chapters 1 through 8, mostly like census and organization. Chapters 9 and 10 are the second Passover and moving into the wilderness. In chapters 11 and 12, you have immediate rebellion. This is where you have the story of the quail from the people, and then you have the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron as uh, leaders. So even the leaders and the people both are rebelling. Chapters 13 and 14 are the scouting of Canaan, sending the spies into Canaan to scout. Chapters 15 and 19 is all about rebellion versus holiness. So this is what we looked at last night. This is about um, uh, after they've been punished to wander 40 years already because of, of not trusting in the Lord in chapter 14. Now, this is where we have the rebellion, the, the, the man gathering wood on the Sabbath who has to be taken outside of the community and be stoned. It does not appear that he's an Israelite man, but the law is for him nevertheless. Um, and chapters 16, 17 are about uh, Korah's rebellion and the response to that, where they take the fire pans and cover the, the altar in it. Chapters 18 and 19, we didn't really look at 19, but 18 and 19 are about holiness and they're about um, what special treatment the priests get and how to purify and, and cleanse things, that sort of thing. So now we're into chapter 20 tonight, and this is water from the rock. Now we've seen water from the rock once already back in Exodus. Let me go back to that slide. Exodus uh, 16 through 18, I believe it's chapter 18, where um, the Lord provides water from the rock. Moses strikes the rock and water comes out of it at that time. And uh, I think I have a uh, slide of that. Uh, okay, it's Exodus 17. So here that is. Let me just make sure that you are able to see that. Yeah, great. Um, so, um, 
you know, the people say to Moses, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. Uh, the Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So a couple of things I want you to note about the original story. When this happens... Uh, God is, he says, I will stand there in front of you. So we, we know that's the, the pillar of the cloud, right? So the God is visibly there. He's doing it in front of the elders. So, you know, sort of implied that it's been explained to the elders what's happening. The elders have a sense that Moses is doing something that the Lord has asked him to do. Um, it doesn't specifically say that, but that's kind of implied that he would take the, that's why he's taking the elders out sort of separate from everybody because those elders then would turn around and go back and say, oh, this is what the Lord has done, right? And Moses really doesn't say anything. Just like Abraham in chapter 12, when God says go, Abraham doesn't respond at all. There's no dialogue back from Abraham. He just obeys and goes. In this situation, Exodus 17, we have the same thing. Moses says nothing. He just obeys and does what the Lord says to do. And again, it ends with, this is because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the whole question on the table is, is the Lord among us? Then the Lord appears and water comes out of the rock at the command um, that he gives to his chosen servant, Moses. So that kind of answers the question, is the Lord among us or not? Yes, the Lord is among us. Okay, that's the original story. So now let's go to Numbers chapter 20. You may be there already, and we will um, be ready to read that text. So this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Numbers 20 and verse 1. The entire Israelite community entered the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and they settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. So the first thing I want to say as we're reading through this, it says in the first month. Uh, we're not real sure when this takes place, but... Uh, a few chapters from now, in chapter 33 of Numbers, it gives sort of a, a a list of all the places they went, almost kind of like a map quest instructions. If you remember getting map quest instructions and you'd print them out and they'd have sort of the turn by turn directions. So that's sort of what we have in chapter 33 is sort of turn by turn directions. Where did they go? And based on that, a lot of people think that this is happening in year 40. Okay. So the punishment was assigned in chapter 14. Only a couple of stories have happened in the interim. And now here we are in chapter 20 and the 40 years appears to be over. So all this time has passed. So uh, a couple of things that we can learn from that, which we'll talk about a little later. So when it says the first month, we think that means the first month of this 40th year. And again, they settled in Kadesh. So just to go back to the keynote, um, that would be, I say it's the red star at the top right. Classically, people say it's the yellow star in the top center, but somewhere uh, south of modern day Israel. Okay. All right. Continuing on verse two, there was no water for the community. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. So once again, just going back to this map, you can see how brown and how dry it is in both of those places that, um, you know, it's this is south, hotter than the Dead Sea. So you can see that there would be, you know, not a lot of water around. 
And so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? And see, this is the same complaint back from Exodus 17, right? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil to It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell down with their faces to the ground. So one thing I do want to point out here is now Aaron's on board, right? So uh, back during the golden calf, Aaron was part of the problem. During the story of Miriam and Aaron uh, rebelling, Aaron was sort of idly standing by. In the story of uh, Korah's rebellion that we read about last night, Aaron was on the right side of things. Now we have Aaron and Moses here together. Aaron's finally on board and Aaron, Aaron has spiritually matured. So they both fall down with their faces to the ground and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Verse seven, the Lord spoke to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that a great amount of water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me, to show my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and he showed his holiness to them. Okay, a few things to talk about. One thing I just want to point out, this word Meribah, which was mentioned back here in Exodus 17. It's named Massah and Meribah. You see certain places have more than one name. Uh, Kadesh, Massah, Meribah, uh, Kadesh Barnea, lots of different names for this area. And those names refer to uh, things that happen there. So we give things names that we want to remember. We name things based on how we want to remember them and how we want to think about them. What we call things sort of informs how we think about them and what it says to other people about them. So there's something there. Okay. Um, so let's talk about this story a little bit here. Many of you are probably, those of you who have grown up in the church are familiar with the story, but I have never heard it talked about the way we're going to talk about tonight. So, so like I said, this appears to be year 40. So in chapter 14, they're banished to 40 years. And by chapter 20, the 40 years is basically over. So the first takeaway here is this, the Lord fulfills his promises in his time. And we've seen this already, right? We saw this in Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, you know, you're going to have descendants. And how old is Abraham? He's 75. How old is Abraham when Isaac is finally born? He's 100. 25 years pass. It's so easy for us to flip the page, you know, but uh, Abraham had to wait through that for 25 years. It's probably very difficult for him to do. So what's happened in that 40-year time span? Well, other than the couple of stories that we've read there, 
part of the punishment was not just that they'd wander for 40 years, but the whole point of wandering for 40 years, 40 years is basically the length of a generation. So uh, sometimes the word generation and 40 years, sometimes those are kind of interchangeable in scripture, depending on what you're reading. And so basically the idea here is not just that they're banished one year for every day that the scouts were in uh, Canaan because they were there for 40 days. But there's also the implication that it's the time period of a generation, that the current generation will die out and a new generation will grow up. So think about what's happened in 40 years. Everyone from age 20 and up is part of the punishment, is part of the group that is not going to see the promised land. So people who were adults who were 40 at that time are now 80. So Caleb, who does get to see the promised land, he was 40 at the time that he went to scout Canaan. Well, he's 80 at the time that they finally enter the promised land. Uh, someone who was um, just born, who was one year old when the punishment was given, is now my age. It's now a, a grown person, it's now an adult. And many children have been born during this time, and many of the current generation have died out. Almost all of them have. That's why we see Miriam dying, and we have just a handful that we suspect are probably still around. Moses is still around. Caleb, of course, is going to be still around. Joshua, of course, is going to be still around. Um, but most of the generation has probably died out. So there's a lot of things that have happened in here. But the important thing to remember is not what happened so much as the result of it. So there is a new Israel now. So in chapter 14, it was the first nation of Israel. Now we're sort of at the second generation of Israel. This is a generation who... You know, anyone who is 45, maybe even 50 and younger, they don't remember Egypt. They don't remember slavery. They don't remember the Passover. They don't remember the plagues. They don't remember the Exodus. They don't remember the Red Sea. And if they weren't born, they certainly don't remember it, right? Many of them were too young to, to remember it. Now they're adults. So all your adults, all your leaders, they don't remember any of that. Perhaps that's where... Um, Korah's arrogance came from. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how old he was. But uh, you can see that this new generation would come up and uh, they don't have anything to compare their experience to. So manna is just expected. That's just a way of life for them. You know, they're not complaining about going back to Egypt uh, unless they hear their older uh, ancestors complaining about it their whole life. Right. Oh, well, here's how we had things in Egypt, you know, right. The good old days, right. The good old days when we were slaves. So that's a very important thing because it provides some some context here that here's this new generation that has been, that has been raised up. Everything that we've read so far was for the old generation who has now mostly died out and is going to die out. So what about this new generation? Do they know the Lord? And what we see is right away they're up to the same complaints as their fathers and their mothers. They've got the exact same complaints, right? Oh, we're going to die here. Our livestock's going to die. We're going to die of thirst. We have no water. All right. Now, if you had no water, it'd be a valid complaint. I mean, I'd be complaining if I had no water. I'd want to do something about it, right? But the the problem is not the just the complaining, is that the complaining represents not trusting the Lord, which is going to be a theme of this story. So the big thing that happens here is um, God tells Moses to do something. Moses does something and suffers consequences because of it. And it's a big consequence. He does not get to enter the promised land. God comes to him in a burning bush for three books now, for three scrolls of Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We've been waiting on the time that Moses gets to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And now the Lord says, 
You're not going to get to do that. Neither you nor Aaron are going to get to do that. So we have to ask, what was Moses's grave sin that caused God to, to revoke this honor? Because we've been sort of expecting it for some time now. And so what was the grave sin? What was the sin that Moses did? So I have to tell you what I was taught growing up about this story was very, very simple. And as I read the story, the story is not simple. It doesn't mean that it's it's difficult to understand. It just means that there's some complexities to it and some depth to it. There is some depth to it that, that is really important to look at because it applies to every single one of us. But unfortunately, the story I was told is something that's just really kind of a surface thing. It's kind of a shallow thing, doesn't have a lot of depth to it, and quite frankly, leads to a lot of bad theology, even though it's rooted in a very good truth. Okay, so the story I was kind of taught about this was, well, God said, speak to the rock. Moses hit the rock. And so he doesn't get to go to the promised land. I have to say, if that's your takeaway of the story, if you read the story and that's the theology you walk away with, that's that's a very incomplete theology. You have not really dived into the depth of this text. And it leads to a very um, legalistic theology of fear, very similar to the Nadab and Abihu story that says, well, God said A and you did A and a half or you did B. And so that's it. You're out. You can't go to heaven now. And there is much truth, and we must obey the word of God as it says. We must obey what God has asked us to do. We must obey God's commands as they are commanded. And I'm not saying that Moses didn't disobey the Lord. I'm just saying there is more to this story. So we've got to look at that. Okay. So I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not all. And we need to look at all of it because we're going to see there's really bigger implications here. So again, in the Nadab and Abihu story, it wasn't just that they took fire from the wrong place or whatever kind of thing, which we can't even necessarily say was a problem given the scripture that we have. It's very hard to prove that even. But when we look at the Nadab and Abihu story in context, we can see here are spiritual leaders doing something grossly unholy, so gross that the Lord doesn't even hesitate to completely destroy them in front of everyone to say, we're not doing that. That's a big context that we need to understand that spiritual leaders are held to a level of accountability that normal lay people are not. I take that very seriously as somebody who gets on here in public and teaches scripture. Like I, that's, it's a way of, you know, holding myself accountable. Um, when I've taught class or when I've spoken at different events, I mean, that's, that's something where I really have to really examine myself and examine my, my behavior and my choices in my heart, because I know that the Lord's going to hold me more responsible than maybe the people that I'm speaking to. So I take that very seriously. That's a very serious thing that we need to walk away with rather than just a legalistic spirit of fear. So let's continue looking at this story. What was Moses's sin actually? Okay. So there's actually kind of several possibilities here that are offered up by different commentators. The Lord doesn't explicitly state what the exact action was that was sin. He doesn't state real specifically. Okay, so let's go back and look exactly at the text and see exactly what it was that God said. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to show my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So the Lord doesn't state the specific sin, but he states the deeper thing that's happening. The, 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 the sin was just a symptom of a worse problem. And the worst problem was you didn't trust me to show my holiness in the sight of the Israelites. Okay, so that's what the Lord says. So we have to be careful when we're developing 
a theology or a teaching that we don't add anything to what the Lord says. So let's kind of look through this and see what's happening here. So some people think it was about striking the rock rather than just speaking to it. Okay. The Lord does say, speak to the rock. Moses strikes it and it does not appear that he speaks to it. So certainly the Lord has given a clear instruction and Moses has done something else. Certainly on its surface and probably even in context, that was a sin. That was Moses not doing what God said to do. Okay. Let's put a little bit of context around it. And this is going to complicate it just a little bit. Just again, to show you, these are real people. These are real circumstances. These are real contexts. These are not flannel board characters. These are not Sunday school stories. These are not vacation Bible school skits. These are real things that happen in a context. We need to know the whole context to understand the complexities. So let's think about everything that we've read about so far with the Exodus. I know we zipped through the Exodus a lot because I really wanted to sort of concentrate here on the book of Numbers. But uh, sort of the history of pagan magic was about speaking. It was about the spoken word. So the plagues were about Pharaoh's magicians versus Moses so that Moses could say, no, my God is the real God. Because for the first few plagues, Pharaoh's magicians were able to recreate also in some kind of way, right? And the gods of Egypt versus the gods of Israel, that ends up sort of being the battle here. And very clearly the God of Israel uh, is the victor every time. So uh, all these stories are sort of about who we were versus who we're going to be, the world versus the Lord, right? And so the pagan magic was usually done with a word uh, or a word and deed together. So like a like a spoken incantation, because I, it's, it's like a Harry Potter magic. Because I speak an incantation, something will happen. I caused it by what I said. Okay. So now don't get this confused with the word of the Lord, because the word of the Lord does speak things into existence, does speak things into happening. But when we see Moses going up against Pharaoh, when he speaks, what is he telling Pharaoh? The Lord says, right, is what Moses is saying, right? The Lord says this, the Lord says you better do this. But when Moses does something, he usually doesn't speak. He, he, he simply performs an action as, as an obedient, just like we read here in uh, Exodus 17. The Lord tells him what to do about the water. Moses doesn't say anything. He just strikes the rock and the water comes out. So <clears throat> from this context, it would be real hard to completely convict Moses about just the striking because it, he's, you know, struck the Nile, I believe, in order to split the Red Sea. He struck the rock for the water to come out. He's uh, He struck the, the, the Nile for, for it to turn into blood and back in the plagues. So there, there, it seems like maybe the striking's implied. It seems to happen quite a bit. It seems to be that um, that seems to be part of some of the signs that God does. So it'd be kind of hard to completely convict Moses on that count alone. Although you could definitely say God told him to speak to it and it's, he, he doesn't seem to actually speak to the rock. Instead, he speaks to the Israelites, right? So, so this, it's, it's a sin. It's a rebellion. Is it worthy of not letting him go into the, I mean, this isn't Moses's first thing that he's done wrong, right? So, uh, this isn't Moses's first, I mean, in chapter three, God comes to him from the burning bush and says, I want you to speak to my people. And Moses hedges and hedges. Ah, no, I don't, I don't know. I can't speak. I'm not a good speaker. Get somebody else. Get Aaron. Right. And God says, okay, fine. I'll get Aaron. Um, but here in this instance, he says, you're not going into the promised land because of this. So it might be that he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. It might be that he didn't speak to it when God told him to speak to it. It might be those things, but I feel like it must be more than that. So I'm not saying it's not that, okay? I'm just saying it's got to be, I think, more than that to demand the punishment that he's given, and especially based on what God says, because God doesn't say, ah, I said do this and you did that. You're out. 
What he says is, you didn't trust me to show my holiness to the nation of Israel. So let's kind of keep going and keep thinking about this. Moses and Aaron, you didn't trust me that I would show my holiness. So the Israelites ask in verse four, they ask Moses, why have, why have you brought us out? Right? So they don't say, why has the Lord brought us out of here? They say to Moses, why have you brought us out of here? Right? That same word for brought out is used of the water. So there's this narrative tie here between, hey, Moses, you brought us out of Egypt. And later, uh, Moses says, must we bring out water for you? Right? So both times they have the wrong subject. The subject is Moses. Was it Moses that brought them out of Egypt? No, it was the Lord. Who brought out the water? It wasn't Moses. It was the Lord. So it seems that Moses's great sin, in addition to the sin of not obeying the specific actions, it seems that Moses's great sin was um, taking credit for what God was going to do. Because they say, Moses, you did this, and Moses doesn't correct them. And when Moses is given an opportunity to correct them, he instead takes it upon himself. I mean, let's go back to the keynote and let's look at what Moses actually says and look at how indicting it is. Um, so down in verse 10, Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we, who's we? Well, it's clear he's talking about Moses and Aaron. Must we bring water out of this rock for you? Ooh, Moses, that's bad. That's not good because Moses is claiming the credit. Moses is claiming the responsibility for bringing the water out of that rock and uh, not giving the credit to the Lord. So even then, the Lord doesn't specifically say, hey, Moses, you stole the credit, right? What does the Lord say? The Lord says, well, you didn't trust me to show my holiness, before the Israelites. So this, you didn't trust me part, the way I think that can help us think of that and sort of correctly connect it to this story is um, this idea right here that, hey, Moses, you took matters into your own hands. I had something that I wanted to do. I gave you instructions about how that should be done, but you didn't trust me. You took matters into your own hands and did it your own way. So even though the specific actions were not what God commanded to do, and that was sin enough, the real rebellion here was that you didn't trust me that I had my way I was going to do this. But it was also specifically what Moses didn't trust the Lord to do. So it wasn't just that Moses didn't trust the Lord. It's what he didn't trust him to do. Because the Lord said, uh, you didn't trust me. You didn't let me show my holiness. So. The takeaway here is when you take matters into your own hands, you rob the Lord of being able to show who he is to the world. Now, this is a theme we've seen over and over again throughout numbers with people in spiritual leadership capacity, people with spiritual leadership position, people with spiritual authority, taking matters into their own hands. What happens? The Lord comes down and says, no, we're not, it's not going to be like that. Because I am, I am holy. I have to show my holiness. When you take matters into your own hands, you rob me of the opportunity to do that. Remember, God takes his story, his commands, his, his religious practices, and he puts them in our hands to show the world who he is. And we, when we take things into our own hands and do them our own way, it's showing that we don't trust the Lord to show his own holiness. 
And furthermore, it was to whom that holiness was to be shown. So the Lord is saying, hey, you squandered my chance to show this new generation of Israel why I am different than all other gods. So I was going to use this opportunity to show this new generation who I am, and you robbed me of the opportunity to do that. That's, that to me, that's the big sin. Okay, I'm not saying the actions aren't the big sin. I'm just saying all I was taught was it was just the actions. He didn't obey it exactly, and he got kicked out of heaven for it. And that taught me a that taught me a, a religion of fear. Right? Well, that's not scriptural. That's not good theology. That's not complete theology. And incomplete theology is bad theology. A more complete theology includes these deeper ideas. Moses took matter into his own hands. He. Um, did not let the Lord show his holiness. And now he squandered God's chance to show the new Israel why he's different than all other gods. And what's really interesting to me is uh, this. How does the text end? Let's go back and look at how the text ends. The last word of the text. And he, that is the Lord, and he showed his holiness to them. The Lord showed his holiness anyway. He just showed it by punishing Moses and Aaron rather than by giving them water. Now, which story would you want to be a part of? Would you want to be a, a part of the story where the Lord blesses the whole community by showing them water and Moses and Aaron get to go into the promised land? Or would you rather be part of the story where the people complain, Moses and Aaron rebel, Moses and Aaron get kicked out of the promised land and they, they still get water and God still shows his holiness. I mean, why not go with the first story? Why not trust the Lord and do it his way? Right? Because either way, the Lord is going to show his holiness. So when we rob the Lord of an opportunity to show himself through a blessing, the Lord may instead show himself through his judgment. And so maybe we could rephrase the Lord's judgment in a way that might hit um, a little closer to home. And that is like this. God says, why didn't you tell them who I am? Now, this is something that we can walk away with tonight and hear the, the words of the Lord, you know, simplified in this way, these paraphrased words, sort of God asking us this question, hey, why didn't you tell them who I am? So the good news is this, and this is uh, Isaiah chapter 45. The Lord says, uh, you know, here in verse 23, by myself, I have sworn truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. This is something that Paul will repeat in Romans chapter 14. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Now, they're either going to bow in worship or in submission. They'll either cry out in praise or in anguish, but every knee one day will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the Lord is who he is. So if it can go either way, you know, uh, praise or anguish, worship or submission, why is that good news? Why do we call that good news? Why do we call that the gospel, the good news? Well, it's good news because we know it now before the judgment. We know it now and we can share it now. We can share it now with, with how we live. We can share it now with how we love. We talked last night about loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as, as ourselves. We can share now by loving better, loving more righteously, uh, loving more uh, in, in a more holy way. 
We can share now with the words that we speak, with our worldview, with our values. We can share that now. So the Lord says, why didn't you tell them who I am? You know, that's not a question that we want to hear. We instead want to be people that trust the Lord to show his holiness. And we do the things that he asks us to do. So here's the challenging part. Okay. If your quiet times are so quiet that your classmates, coworkers, neighbors, family, they don't know that you follow Jesus. If your quiet times are so quiet that the people around you don't know that you follow Jesus, what would the Lord say about that? Wouldn't he ask you, why didn't you tell them who I am? If your values are the Lord's, but you never act on them, what would the Lord say about that? I mean, wouldn't he say, hey, why didn't you tell them who I am through your obedience? If your friends are slowly drowning and dying in the the death and and decay of sin, the the tohu wabohu of, of Genesis 1, the turmoil, the abyss, if your friends are drowning in the abyss and you sit in your lifeboat and watch and shake your head and say, Uh, It's just too bad. What do you think the Lord would say? Hey, why didn't you tell them who I am? Why didn't you do something? So this, again, comes back to spiritual maturity. When we don't trust the Lord to show his holiness, we're showing we're not spiritually mature. Someone who is spiritually mature is someone that is showing other people who the Lord is, is showing other people what the Lord's holiness means is showing other people how to obey and serve the Lord and to love their neighbor as their self. Is someone who is showing other people how to show other people to trust and follow the Lord. That's called discipleship. And it's about spiritual maturity, something that I hope that we'll get a chance to talk about in later lessons. But it's something to think about as we wrap up tonight. This is a challenging thing to think about. But if you're not helping other people learn to trust and follow Jesus, you are not yet spiritually mature. Now, some of you listening are not spiritually mature because you're new to scripture. Okay. So if a six month old wears diapers, that's to be expected, right? In fact, if you got a six month old, that's not wearing diapers, you're going to have some problems on your hands. I can, I can think of at least two, right? So you want a six month old to wear diapers. That's just normal for that stage of life. But if you got a 16 year old still wearing a diaper, it's because there's something that's not quite right. There's something not normal happening there. Spiritually, it's the same. Some childish behavior, some childish understanding, some shallow understanding of stories, that's to be expected from someone who's a a spiritual infant or a spiritual child. But once you grow into spiritual adulthood, there are much deeper, larger expectations of you, right? You're expected to grow in your spiritual maturity. We've seen Aaron grow in his spiritual maturity, right? And we should grow in our spiritual maturity as well until we become somebody like Caleb, somebody who was wholehearted, someone who did trust the Lord completely to show his holiness. So this is the thing I really want to start challenging you on is if you're not helping someone else trust and follow the Lord in some kind of way, then this story is about you. The Lord is saying to you, didn't I tell you to go into all the world and make disciples? Didn't I tell you to love your neighbor as yourself? Didn't I tell you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Didn't I tell you I was going to make you a fisher of men? Didn't I tell you the Sermon on the Mount? Didn't I give you the parables? Didn't I give you the prophets? Why didn't you tell them who I am? Why didn't you trust me 
to show my holiness to the world? It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. So I just read this verse from Isaiah chapter 45. I want to read one more verse from Isaiah, and this is from chapter 42. I'm sorry, Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's good news for us. There are mountains of people, mountains of the world, mountains of fields ready for harvest that are waiting for our feet to walk across them, to walk toward them, to bring them the beautiful good news. And so the question I got to leave you with tonight as that question, that possible question from the Lord, why didn't you tell them who I am echoes in the back of your head. Let's put that into a question of action and ask, where do your feet need to take you? Who do you need to help trust and follow Jesus more deeply? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.